Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. My name is Philip Gooding, a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Center at McGill University. Today, I am very pleased to be joined by Professor Alexandra Kelly, who is an assistant professor of history and anthropology at the University of Wyoming. Professor Kelly has a PhD in anthropology from Stanford and an MA and a BA from the University of Chicago. She describes herself as a historical anthropologist and archaeologist interesting in Africa, capitalist expansion, imperialism, exchange, material culture, and heritage. Her published articles include an article entitled Western Activism and the Veiling of Primitive Accumulation in the East African Ivory Trade, which was published in Historical Archaeology in 2019. In this podcast, she is going to discuss with us her forthcoming book entitled Consuming Ivory, Mercantile Legacies of East Africa and New England, which will be published later this year with the University of Washington Press. Professor Kelly, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me here today. Okay, so I really want to start off very wide in this question. Um, what is your book about? Um, what are its inspirations? Uh, and what did you aim to achieve as you researched and wrote it? How does ivory link East Africa and New England, past and present? So I think that I'll start with an overview of what I was trying to do with this book and then maybe talk a little bit about how it came about. But the, the, the aim is to produce a, an interdisciplinary approach that's tacking between anthropology and archaeology and history and tracing the way that the circulation of ivory is wound up in global and historical narratives about Africa's cultural and natural heritage. And so I'm trying to, in archaeology, there's this post-processual moment that happens in the 1980s, and that moment sort of produces two tracks. One is a focus on material culture and materiality theory and how objects are how we can use objects from the past to think about identity and power and agency and all of these things in the past and do a more subjective, you know, nuanced uh, production of the past. But then the second trajectory is sort of what we know as critical heritage studies. And so that's thinking about what role objects have in the, in the contemporary, you know, in contemporary politics, like what work, are, what work is the past doing in the present? And how is archaeology used in these contemporary political projects? And, and I ended up sort of on that track just because of my advisors at, the, at Stanford University were Lynn Meskel and Ian Hodder, who are both big figures in this post-processual movement and critical heritage studies and materiality theory and so on. But I think that you know, a lot of anthropologists or archaeologists rather tend to take one track or the other. And I didn't really set out deliberately trying to do both, but the way that when I ended up stumbling upon the ivory trade and was thinking about the significance that ivory has both in the past and the present, it just really synced well with that dual aim of post-processual archaeology. But the um, it was kind of ironic because I was, as an undergrad, I was doing Near Eastern archaeology and I was, you know, in the anthropology department at the University of Chicago and taking, taking a lot of classes at the Oriental Institute. And it was in that context that I sort of got introduced to the Indian Ocean and this idea of the Indian Ocean being this pre-modern world system and 
you know, the, the globalization and cosmopolitan, cosmopolitanism and so on. And then I was supposed to do a field school in Egypt that got canceled after 9-11. And I ended up doing a field school or a study abroad program in Tanzania instead. And so I had, you know, done some Swahili and Arabic and did this field school in Tanzania, which was absolutely incredible because we did, we took like eight weeks of courses at the University of Dar. And then we were doing research and camping in the Serengeti. And then we went back to Dar and did homestays. And so it was, you know, a pretty elaborate field school experience. But when I ended up getting into the anthropology program at Stanford, they have a very strong Africanist presence in the anthro program. And so it just made sense to sort of look at the Indian Ocean from an African perspective. And so things sort of unfolded from there. So I originally thought that I would look at the indigenous appropriation of Western commodities, sort of in the vein that um, Jeremy Prestholt has done and Pedro Mercado and Karen Palaver. Um, and so I was you know, looking at 19th century trade routes and I was really lucky to get involved in Paul Lane's HEAL project, which was Historical Ecologies of East African Landscapes he, when he was at York. And I th- believe he's just now newly at Cambridge. But when he was focusing on the ivory trade and had a bunch of PhDs working on different aspects of the ivory trade, and had sort of suggested that the symbolic dimension of the ivory trade and ivory consumption would be, you know, something that I could contribute to that project. And he had another grad student, um, Ashley Kutu, who was doing the isotopic analysis of ivory and the symbolic stuff ended up being like too much. And so I sort of said, okay, I'll look at that. And then I was back in Connecticut because I'm from Connecticut and I, thought to visit this town Ivoryton, which is just a few miles away from where I was, where I grew up. But I had never, I knew of, you know, there's a famous theater there where Catherine Hepburn got her start and sort of the seasonal playhouse. But I didn't really know anything about it except that. And I had never thought about why it was called Ivoryton. So I went there one day when I was on winter break and I was just shocked because the entire town is covered in elephants. You know, there's elephants on every sign, and if you go into the Ivoryton Library, there's this case of ivory objects sitting in the back of the reading room and, you know, elephants all over the all over the library. And so I just was super surprised to see this, you know, the symbols of Africa like being displayed so prominently in this little town in Connecticut. And it was ironic that as somebody that always did research so far away that I would find this kind of anchor to what I was looking to do, you know, really close to where I had grown up. But I ended up um, doing some research at the Ivoryton Library, and I wanted to use the, the, this collection of ivory objects as sort of an anchor for thinking about these mercantile relationships that existed between New England and East Africa. But the sort of short version of the history is that the Salem merchants in Massachusetts were getting outcompeted in Boston with by Boston and New York in like China and India and were looking for a niche market and they have been doing some like hide trading in Madagascar and sort of hopping up and down the East African coast and trading in Aden. And then um at the same time, you know, the Sultan of Oman had been getting more involved in the East African coast and then moves, you know, moves the capital of the Omani Empire from Muscat to Zanzibar. And so there was this kind of convergence of global ambitions with the Omanis and the Americans on Zanzibar. And 
it was you know the fact that the Americans were the first to establish a consulate on Zanzibar is sort of surprising when we think about the way that the, that history is narrated and that you know the British and the Germans and other European powers are the ones that colonized that region you know we don't really think about Americans having an early history there but the Salem merchants were you know one of the objects coming out of East Africa was was ivory and so they were looking for ways to process that and Connecticut the Connecticut River Valley had sort of developed its own industry using water driven you know water power driven factories and one of the industries they were doing was develop, cutting bone combs. And so I'm not exactly sure what that link looked like, but it seems like the Salem merchants, you know, deliberately were investing in manufacturing in New England. And one of the ventures that they invested in was ivory cutting in the Connecticut River Valleys. And so in Ivoryton, there were two competing ivory cutting companies. One was actually in a nearby town called Deep River, but they were cutting piano key veneers and a bunch of other, you know, Victorian bric-a-brac. Um, and in the 90s, they spearheaded this heritage program called The Town the Elephants Built. And so I was just super fascinated why this little town in Connecticut was sort of, you know, doing this whole heritage project that connected itself to East Africa. So it was about resurrecting industrial you know, sort of celebrating the industrial heritage of that that area, but also recognizing New England complicity in the 19th century slave trade in East Africa, because it was believed that slaves were being conscripted in the East African interior to be carried to the, you know, to carry the ivory to the coast, and then they were being sold into the slave trade, which is actually somewhat historically inaccurate, but that's, you know, the really big idea behind this heritage program. And then the third, the third prong of the heritage program was recognizing New England complicity and contemporary extinction of elephant populations in, in East Africa. And so I just saw a ton of work being done here with this, you know, these ivory objects in the library bookcase as sort of an anchor of sorts, but narratives about New England and Africa and Western representations of Africa and how heavily elephants and ivory figure in those representations. And in all of these narratives, Africa is produced as a place where that in need of saving. And so, you know, whether it's the slave trade or the uh, poaching of elephants, then, you know, the West is supposed to rush in and, and save, you know, these, these African, like, I don't know, solve these African problems. And so I saw this kind of asymmetrical relationship being set up in those narratives and then perpetuated in the contemporary heritage narratives. And so ivory just seems like a really useful material to think through some of those relationships. That's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for describing um, your, your book in such, um, such detail. I'm absolutely fascinated by the way that um, your book, uh, I suppose, challenges um, conventional paradigms of both space and time. Thinking about um, the fact that you think about the Indian Ocean world, but taking that all the way across the Atlantic. Uh, and also in terms of time, you take a very long durée perspective um, about how there's a, a, an ongoing thinking from the Western perspective about Africa. Um, that is um, contrary to how we might split things up into pre-colonial, colonial and post-colonial period, that there is actually a, a continuum there. And I found this absolutely um, fascinating about your book. Um, 
I just wondered um, on a kind of taking uh, taking on those threads. Um, what one of the things that is very interesting is the fact that Americans haven't had that much attention been given to them in the context of the 19th century Indian Ocean world. And I wondered what, what happens if you do center Americans in it, or not so much center, or, or if you give them more of a place. So I think most of the time when we're thinking about the 19th century, as you said, we think about the British, uh, the French, and I suppose to a lesser degree, the Germans, um, in terms of outsiders coming in. What happens if, when you, if you center um, Americans instead, or as well as, uh, in this context? I think first, I mean, my first reaction is that it was definitely a, I mean, it was, I was definitely disappointed that one, by following the ivory one, I was led out of Africa. So like, I wasn't looking at indigenous appropriation of Western commodities anymore, but I was also doubly disappointed that following the ivory also kind of led me out of the Indian Ocean. Um, But I do think that, you know, I think that there is something really interesting about thinking about the American, you know, American history in the Indian Ocean, and particularly when we follow it into the present. And I don't know, you know, not to get like into too complicated a discussion about the book, but a large part of the, a large part of the narratives that the West has about Africa are mediated through the East and these Oriental notions. When we're talking about the Western anxiety about the slave trade in East Africa. There is the villain, the villains of that are these Asiatic traders that are supposedly like the cool Arab traders that are slaving, that are enslaving Africans into the Indian Ocean system. And then when we talk about the contemporary, contemporary anxieties about elephant extinction in East Africa, the villains of that saga are sometimes African poachers, but are often these East Asian traders and, you know, people that are trading in ivory and, you know, the ivory queens and kings and so on. And the villain is also Asian consumption of ivory, because the perception is that Westerners are not consuming ivory anymore, even though that's not exactly true. But it's interesting to me how, you know, even if we're looking at something specific, like this trade relationship between Zanzibar and Salem, Massachusetts and Connecticut, that it, those are still global histories because they involve ideas about these regions that are really expansive. So I'm not sure if that exactly answers the question about Americans in the Indian Ocean, but I think it points to, you know, ways that we can think about these histories being global in, in different ways than we've necessarily thought of before. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to pick up on something that you mentioned in your book about in the Ivoryton Museum um, that. Mostly it is in the Ivoryton Museum, there were industrially made objects. So objects made from African ivory in um, places like Ivoryton in Connecticut, Deep River. Um, But he also said, wrote that there's a subset of objects consisting of Indian and East Asian carved objects, ornate beads and boxes, along with an African armlet and an Inuit oval cylindrical object etched with fish. What are these doing here? It seems to these aren't things that were carved. These aren't from Ivoryton's heritage or industrial mm-hmm. heritage, but they somehow feed into it. I feel like this speaks to what you're just saying just now as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, I believe that the majority of those more exotic objects end up in the assemblage because the executives of the ivory company 
would collect ivory objects when they were traveling. And there's a couple of, I mean, there's some documentation of the Comstock family that was the, the it was, um, the, so there were two different ivory companies and then they end up merging eventually in the 19th century. But the Comstock family was one of the, one of the big families uh, in, you know, ownership of, of one of the factories. And they do a, they do a trip to East Africa and South Africa in, I want to say the early 1900s, but, and there was a newspaper article written up about it. And I was really frustrated with this article because it doesn't really mention Zanzibar or the, the actual place where this trade was happening. It's more like safari in the, in the interior and, and that sort of thing. But I do think that these objects got into the collection through through these globe-trotting executives, you know, in the 20th century, and it's really interesting because the this the so I was doing a, an object history, like I was actually looking at the the actual history of these objects in the assemblage in Ivoryton, and you know, some of what I was doing was sort of using them as an anchor in ways, but I tried to keep that real when I could. But the this assemblage of objects in the library came about because when the ivory companies, when the ivory industry sort of, you know, the piano key industry was in its, you know, last legs in the mid mid 20th century and the ivory companies had merged and then they were branching out and making other products. And so they were kind of shutting down ivory operations. The one of the executives decided to make to build an ivory museum in Ivoryton on one of the floors of the old factory. And so he pulled together all these objects from his collections and other executive collections, but also from the descendants of ivory workers in the town. And so people were pulling out pieces of ivory from, you know, attic boxes in the attic and drawers in their houses, and then they end up being donated to the ivory museum. And then the ivory museum itself shut down. I think in, you know, 79 or maybe early 80s. And then that, the objects sort of dissipated again. And with this heritage program in the 1990s, the objects started kind of coming out of the woodwork again. And the librarian that spearheaded the heritage project was, her name was Robbie Storms. And she, I think the whole thing was started because she found some objects and paraphernalia associated with the ivory cutting factories in the basement of the library. But it was... um you know, I was really interested in this sort of waxing and waning of these ivory objects and how they were coming together and then disassembling and then assembling again. And every time they assembled, there was like new narratives being being produced about the ivory industry and Africa and elephants and so on. So, yeah, in terms of these uh, new narratives, they kind of, they, they all narratives about ivory and ivory term, um, re-emerge in the 1990s. In what ways were they different from the Ivory Museum that I suppose closed in 79? What what sparks this? Is it um, the new narratives in, inspired by I suppose, conservation uh, well, narratives? The librarian that spearheaded the heritage program, Robbie Storms, had formerly been a high school English teacher. And so when she found these ivory objects and the you know archives associated with the factories in the Ivoryton Library, she thought of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And at the same time in Connecticut, there was a series, like in 2002, there was a series of articles published in the Hartford Current that was later assembled as a book called Complicity, How the North Promoted, Prolonged, and Profited from Slavery. And so, you know, it was about how like Northern industrialism was using slave-picked cotton or Northern rum making was using slave-produced sugar. And one of the chapters was about 
the piano industry and how the cutting of all of this African ivory was associated with with the slaughter of you know thousands or millions of East African slaves. And so I think it was just in this moment that she found the objects that it's the, the thing at the time, the thing to do was to recognize, you know, the, the industrial complicity in an involvement in the slave trade. Um, and so the heritage narrative that, that came out of the 1990s was much more aware of, was much more ethically situated than the sort of celebration of industrial heritage that was associated with the Ivory Museum. Yeah, and it really came out of the, the mid '90s were a kind of, I suppose, a seminal moment in this whole of slave um, histories and slave heritage and slave tourism, as you point out in your book, um, with the development of UNESCO's um, slave heritage program um, as well. So I imagine it really taps into that. Um, but I want to quiz you something kind of something related to that as well. Um, is that something that you bring out in your book? And actually, also I've mentioned in my own research, and you tap into um, Stephen Rockles as well. Um, is about the historical inaccuracies um, related to slavery uh, and the slave trade and its intermingling with the ivory trade in 19th century East Africa. Um, perhaps maybe for, your, for our listeners, you could just like maybe briefly explain what those inaccuracies are. Um, but then also, could you tell us, in your view, why do you think those inaccuracies persist in popular memories, not just in America, but also in East Africa. So the I think the, the the history behind the narrative is that the belief was that when traders went into the interior to buy the ivory that was piling up in the interior, that they would conscript East Africans to carry the ivory back to the coast, and then because the Omanis had set up a plantation system, you know, on the East African coastal strip. And you did have some, you know, you did have some French, uh, the French sugar plantation trade and, you know, Portuguese trade, even, you know, bringing slaves from like the Mozambique area into Brazil and so, and so on, that slaves were, be these ivory porters were then being sold into the slave trade on, you know, in the slave markets in Zanzibar and elsewhere on the Indian Afri East African coast. And I think that this was something that I was really, I felt like I had to be really careful dealing with in my book because I didn't want to suggest that there wasn't a robust slave trade and that there weren't slave markets in East Africa because there was and there were. But I think I was, you know, I was, I love Stephen Rockwell's work and he makes this art, you know, he's researching the Nyamwezi ivory porters and made this really powerful argument about how the Nyamwezi were, you know, essentially like organizing themselves to match this demand on the coast for ivory. And that it was, it was just a really great story of like African, um, you know, proactive African engagement with capitalism. So rather than being this, this sort of passive periphery Africans, it was a really good example of Africans actively engaging with capitalism and, organizing themselves in order to bring ivory to the coast and you know he talks about how it was an early labor culture that's akin to you know the railroad workers and and sailors and so we can talk about capitalism actually being negotiated and formed in you know this east african context and so i was really influenced by his arguments and it just seemed like there was something going on with 
the constant vilification of Asiatic actors in East Africa. Um, and so, and I, I think, um, and so Edward Alpers has talked about this quite a bit as well with the, the Yao and the, the Kamba, you know, the, the, a number of East African historians have highlighted certain interior groups that did actively engage with the ivory trade. And I just wanted to make, you know, I was always going about this with the aim of trying to rewrite and challenge some of these narratives about capitalist engagement in East Africa and, and colonialism and so on. And so I just was thinking a lot about, because I was thinking about heritage, you know, because of my archaeology background, I was thinking about the the tourist the way the tourism is narrated in East Africa and so much of the tourism that is associated with the slave trade you know it does conflate the ivory and slave trades and so I knew that there were East African historians that had made you know pretty strong arguments for the these two trades being separate and I was interested in sort of watching how that played out in contemporary tourist narratives so there's another East African historian named Stephen Fabian who, Fabian who talks about the this conflation of ivory and slave trades in Bagamoyo. And I remembered being um, an undergrad on, a, you know, doing my field, my study abroad in, in Tanzania and going on a tour of Bagamoyo with a professor from the University of Dar and our Swahili professor. And he was telling us about how Bagamoyo means like literally in Swahili means to throw your heart down and that it was, you know, associated with the slave trade and the, the despair that people would feel upon reaching the coast. And then, um, you know, Fabian in his article talks about how there's a there's like a pre-slavery context for Bagamoyo, which is like throw your heart up. And it's about the elation of caravan traders reaching the coast. And, I, you know, there's a, a Catholic museum in Bagamoyo that has really sort of highlighted the slave trade and its role in emancipating slaves. And so it just seemed like there was a lot of work going on there in terms of European institutions narrating this in a way that justifies colonialism and, and you know, uh, capitalist expansion and so on. But um, there's also a lot of narratives associated with, you know, caves on the East African coast and the idea that slaves were hidden in these caves after the slave trade was abolished and then were snuck out into ships at night. And so that's something that's commonly narrated. When I was in Pangani, people talked about, so Pangani is um, the terminus of the Northern caravan route. And there's a riverfront full of Omani and Indian houses. And the rumors were that these houses had subterranean, you know, basements where slaves were supposedly hidden. And then they would be, you know, in, at nighttime, they would be secreted out and shipped off. And so it just, you know, this, this narrative is like really pervasive in East African slavery tourism and I you know I think on one hand there is there is a robust slave trade and you know I think it there's a there's an importance to highlighting that slave trade and commemorating it and you know like the slave routes projects and like the UNESCO intangible heritage projects and so I think that that's really important and I never want to downplay, you know, the fact that that history exists and Europeans are, you know, 100% complicit in it. But what happens when we conflate the ivory and the slave trades and what happens is that we erase this whole history of active African engagement with capitalism and, you know, 
like savvy negotiation with colonial agents and imperial agents. And so I feel like it's important to highlight that though there was a slave trade and it was, you know, atrocious, that that's a separate history from the ivory trade history, which is a really powerful narrative of, you know, active agency on the part of, you know, East African actors. Um, to what do you attribute like the erasure up to now um, of the ivory trade in heritage discourse um, when we're thinking about connections between America and East Africa? Why has it always focused on slavery and slave trades up to now? I guess it seems like, you know, capitalist logic and now neoliberal logic want to produce Africa as a place that's in need of saving in order to justify continued Western intervention. And so, you know, in these narratives, it's Africa is simplified as like a, vic a passive victim. And Asia is often depicted as, you know, a corrupt like influence of in some way. And the Western world is positioned as like the white savior. And so I think that this sort of triad plays out in a lot of narratives and it's used to justify further interference. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's a very persuasive argument. Um, thank you for, for sharing it. Um, does this similar um, kind of narrative come up when you think about conservation um, and the conservation of elephants as well? And do you see this in the... Um, or since the 1990s in Ivoryton and its um, heritage of um, elephants and ivory as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, the Ivoryton narratives are pretty focused on accepting complicity, like New England complicity in these histories. But when you look at the broader conservation narratives, you definitely see these same tropes play out. Uh, and, you know, maybe there's like, it's an understanding of Africans poaching because of economic, um, because of economic, you know, scarcity, or there's still sort of this, like, this idea of, you know, there being like African corruption or um, underdevelopedness or whatever, like justifies exploitation of elephants. But the thing that is not justified is like the Asian involvement and the, I don't know, I mean, when I was in Tanzania, like I had Tanzanians all the time telling me about how, you know, all the Chinese investment in East Africa and like road building and everything, that it was just the guys for siphoning out like illegal ivory. Um, you know, there's like these narratives that sort of percolate like in the development world. And I, I think I would also add that um, there's another level where Islamic fundamentalism is associated with the ivory trade as well, that groups like Al-Shabaab are using ivory to fund extremist, you know, activity in East Africa. And, and you know, it's the same, I, I think it's just, it's the same sort of tropes that played out in Western narratives about the slave trade are now playing out within elephant conservation in East Africa, for sure. So where does this conservation narrative originate? Um, I'm going to refer to your, to your book again here. One of the things that really struck me as really um, quite amazing as you, as you teased out about the um, conservation of elephants in East Africa was that it was only, in only from around the 1930s 
um, that Britain in what was then colonial Tanganyika um, started taking a proactive measure in attempting to conserve elephants from a conserv conservationist standpoint. This seems remarkably late to me. Um, and I, European conservationist ideas um, related to the international world originate centuries before this. And also news of elephants destruction in East Africa have been reaching the British public since the mid 19th century, since Richard Burton, David Livingstone's reports. Um, I wonder, why is, it, why is it so late that conservation of elephants enters um, British imperial discourse in East Africa? I think that it's because of, so in my book, I look at, I spent time in the, 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 the Tanzania uh, National Archives, like sort of by accident. I was rooming with a, an Africanist historian and the museum that I wanted to work at was like undergoing renovation. So I ended up going to the archives with her and then, you know, finding all these game folders and, um, you know, just like thinking, okay, well, I'll just look and see like how, what, what's going on with elephants and the ivory trade, like what records are there for the ivory trade and these colonial records. And what emerged was that elephants were very much considered vermin in colonial Tanganyika because of all these agri colonial agricultural schemes. And so the majority of the early archives are about various colonial administrators and rangers and, you know, various Western hunters asking for permission to keep the ivory that they shot without a permit in somewhere in the East African interior because local villagers villagers were pleading with them to like kill these Shamba raiders. And so for that early, you know, for a big chunk of the 20th century, like elephants are described as Shamba raiders in the archives and that, you know, they were disrupting these, these local East African agricultural plots. And I think it's only when, so the, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm definitely wouldn't, I wouldn't consider myself a historian of, you know, colonial East Africa at all, but um, I mean, I'm sure there's people that have dealt with this more extensively, but my sense from the archives was that the British were concerned about game for white hunting. And so they talked about keeping the game conserved in certain areas for, you know, hunters and other, you know, various imperial visitors from around the globe. Um, and they would complain when, you know, like the Maharaja from, from somewhere came and hunted and the, the game wasn't good. They would, the, they would complain in the archives about the game but it, it was not for the conservation of the game itself. And then around the mid-century, when you, I think when you start to have, when you start to have the idea that independence is looming, and eventually all of this is going to be handed over to East Africans to manage for themselves, I think it's then you start to get anxieties among like the game wardens and other conservationist figures about native, like about East, you know, African poaching and indigenous hunting, like use of use of bows and arrows or poison or musket uh, musket rifles and so on. Um, and then you start to get a fervor in the British public, among the British public about the cruel like slaughter of game in East Africa. But um, it doesn't seem like it's really until, you know, the sixties when the, the game department is being transferred to East African administrators that, these that the narrative is really about like conserving wildlife for wildlife's sake and I think it's because of anxieties about you know that that 
it's, it's about anxieties of African self-rule on the part of Western, you know, figures. Uh, it's really interesting. Uh, and yeah, and obviously by emphasizing this uh, kind of narrative, you again um, take a, a, a long durée perspective on this um, Western narratives of ivory trading and ivory and elephants uh, in, in East Africa. Um, I think if you permit me, I'll um, ask one, one more question, just returning back to North America. Um, how central is now ivory to, so is ivory tan, ivory tan uh, and Deep River? Um, of course, it was absolutely essential to its economy in the 19th century. It's not essential to the economy now, um, but it still seems to be ever present. Like, is this something that's going to develop is this still something that's developing now? Is it going to develop in the future? And do you see, how do you see it um, moving forward? Uh, in, in I mean, I think, you know, I think in most ivory tin, like in most Western contexts, ivory has become 100% taboo now. And so, you know, some of these objects that are in the ivory tin assemblage were donated because they were deemed to be problematic. Um, so, for example, they have a they have a large arch, you know, the kind of classic colonial arch tusk they have at the front entrance of the library and those were donated by Jimmy Stewart's estate because they didn't want to have them around anymore. But um, I, I mean, and this was sort of a complicated, like I felt very complicated about this because in doing this research, I very much came to appreciate ivory as this really amazing, profound material. And, you know, I kind of wanted my own little ivory object just to, you know, commemorate like this research that I had been doing. But there is still lots of ivory circulating in the on the antique market. And, you know, I actually did quite a bit of research on eBay, just looking for the various forms that Victorian ivory took. You know, you could just see the different forms that ivory took in, in the circulation of these objects now, like on the an antique market. But I, I, I feel, I mean, I guess I just will say that I feel conflicted about it because I think that there is, you know, there is a really rich heritage of artisanal production that's associated with ivory and at the same time you know I very much appreciate you know the, the majesty of elephants and you know I mean I'm you know I buy into this idea that we need to conserve them you know because they are amazing but I try to kind of tease that out in my book a little bit in terms of when we talk about you know these animals that become the mega the charismatic megafauna for conservation narratives you know we attach a lot of affect to them and we don't necessarily care about these you know these like thousands of of reptiles and insects that are going extinct at the same time but that when we sometimes in these conservation narratives we end up prioritizing the non-human over the human and if there is still a lot of structural exploitation going on that is associated with the conservation movement in East Africa and, you know, Africa and globally, there are people that are being harmed within that. And, and I think that the people have to take priority over the animals. Yeah, it's a highly complicated uh, and interesting um, development. Well, thank you very much, Professor Andrew Kelly, um, for discussing your book. It's a very exciting project. Um, I can tell all our listeners now that it is available to pre-order. 
um, from the University of Washington Press. Um, a link will be included in the description to this podcast. Um, I also want to thank um, Artisman Chowdhury, um, who has been making sure that this podcast runs smoothly, and to Rene Mandeville, who will be editing it um, afterwards. Uh, and thank you to you, the listener, um, for um, downloading. Um, and once again, my name is Philip Gooding, and you've been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk, Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world. 